Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Christopher Marlowe from the novel A Tip for the Hangman. And joining me for the discussion is first-time guest and author of A Tip for the Hangman, Allison Epstein. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. Very glad to have you on. Uh, Christopher Marlowe is a figure I have had a fascination with. And so when I heard about this book, I uh, mentioned it to my wife, and she got it for Christmas, and I read it, and then... I reached out to you and you were willing to come on as a guest. So very <laughs> excited about that. Um, usually we ask how we came to the work that we're discussing. In this case, you are the creator of the work we're discussing. Yes. So maybe I'll just ask why Christopher Marlowe to you here at the top? Yeah, it's a great, a great question. And I feel like people who read this book have one of two reactions to Christopher Marlowe. Either they're coming to it the way you did, which is I love him. I'm obsessed with him. I have lots of questions and I'm very interested or I've never heard of this person before in my life. I feel like I don't, I don't get very many in-between reactions. And for me, that's just he's one of the most interesting historical figures I've ever come across. Um, I studied Renaissance literature in college, which is to say I was a Shakespeare nerd and wanted to turn that into a college major somehow. And so I was studying other, um, other writers that were active at the time that Shakespeare was. And most of them, there's like one or two documents about them and they, you know, they made gloves or they made bricks or they went or they to college. Or they didn't go to college. probably know about them. Yes. <laughs> and then we got to Marlowe and they're like, oh, also this man went to Cambridge, um, almost got kicked out of Cambridge. But then the queen said, no, you should probably give this guy his degree. And he was almost definitely a spy and almost certainly queer and died before he was 30. And that's all we know. And I'm like, OK, well. I have follow-up questions. I want to know more. I went to the library, and then seven years later, this book came out. So, Oh, that is amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's one of those historical figures that there is just the right amount that is known to be fascinating, and so much that is unknown that you kind of remain unsatiated in trying to learn about, about him. Yes. Makes him such a great topic for historical fiction writers because there's just enough to hang your hat on and <laughs> not too much so that you can't have a little bit of fun. Well, as we've kind of hinted at, A Tip for the Hangman is a historical fiction novel about Christopher Marlowe being recruited by Queen Elizabeth's spymaster and the intrigue that follows up until the end of his life, which is tragically short. Um, is it 30 or 29 when he dies? I'm trying. 29, because this book came out when I was 29 and then I had a little tiny existential crisis about it. So. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you again for uh, coming on to talk about this. I've got a little bit of trivia um, about this. I'm sure you have more, so feel free to share anything that feels relevant <laughs> as we talk about this. Sure. Uh, this was your debut novel, and it received some very favorable reviews. Uh, and I saw that your second novel is going to be released later this year, and it's called Let the Dead Bury the Dead. Do you want to give a little tease about that one at all? Sure. That one's coming out October 17th and um, is available for pre-order, shameless plug. If you like me, you can go get that one. Um, it's set in 19th century Russia immediately after the Napoleonic Wars, and it's a alternate history about an imagined Russian revolution on the, the, the heels of that absolute debacle with Napoleon. It's got some uh, Russian Slavic folktales woven through. I had a lot of fun, and I really hope people like it. 
Oh, that does sound very interesting. Another bit of trivia, and this is actually my um, how I came to it uh, revelation, is that a tip for the hangman was used as a Jeopardy clue. That's uh, how you came to it? Oh, my yep. goodness. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the clue. I found out it was a book about Marlowe because of that clue. And I'm like, I need that. Um, I, I think I've mentioned it to our, our listeners, but I have a son named Kit, and it is after Christopher Marlowe. Oh, uh, I like you so much. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Um, also, do you want one fun fact about when they use your book as a Jeopardy clue? Um, they don't tell you that they're going to do it. So you just get to watch Jeopardy like a normal person. And then all of a sudden, it's your book on the TV. And then all of your friends who watch Jeopardy call you. So, that was so quite did a you nice actually <laughs> see it before your phone went crazy? Or did your phone get crazy and you had to find out what was going on? My phone went crazy. And I started getting screenshots of people watching Jeopardy. And I was like, what on earth is happening? <laughs> I mean, I guess Jeopardy airs in so many different time slots around yeah. the country. There's no way you'd be out there on the first viewing for anyone. But <laughs> the Eastern wow. Time Zone people were very ready. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine what your emotions are like. Like Dream. <laughs> for, I'm just going to go out on a limb since you already revealed that you were an Elizabethan nerd. Um, Jeopardy might be like a core text <laughs> for. <laughs> There's a reason all of my friends and family watch Jeopardy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to find your work, you know, your 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 debut novel as a clue. Oh, it's I can't imagine. The most famous I have ever been or will ever be. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit uh, about this when we recorded an episode about uh, Dr. Faustus, mm -hmm. but I'll just give a little bit of the Christopher Marlowe trivia as well. So he is an interesting figure, to put it mildly. He was like a superstar in his day on the writing scene, and he died at the age of 29. <clears throat> and because his death has some mystery about it, there have been conspiracy theories and like all sorts of nonfiction and fiction books of trying to work out why, how, when <laughs> he died. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like that. What is agreed on uh, from the court records is he died in a small room at a bar where he was stabbed either above the right eye or through the right eye. Uh, you made it chillingly through the right eye, which I think mm. was the more dramatic choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, whether he was killed in a drunken fight over a barbell, targeted for being an atheist, was part of a larger scheme involving Queen Elizabeth spying, retaliation against controversial content of his plays. Like these, these are all, all things that could have been motivations. That's one reason why he's so interesting is uh, there was a lot going on in we that have man's life. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the last bit of trivia, because his death aligns with the ascent of Shakespeare as a playwright, there have been theories that Marlowe faked his own death and subsequently wrote under the pen name of William Shakespeare. It is the official position of this podcast that William Shakespeare wrote the plays of William Shakespeare. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to do a dramatic exit from this podcast if that was not yes. a podcast stance. Every year on Shakespeare's birthday, I go on Twitter and do an angry rant about how this conspiracy theory is garbage. So <laughs> something I feel very strongly about. Uh, I just don't understand. Like... <laughs> Ridiculous. There's not, not the purpose of this episode, but I'm no. with you. I'll climb <laughs> off my soapbox. If you want to talk about that afterwards, message me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, before we run into the uh, summary of this novel, we want to thank our listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level will receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we also give updates on our fantasy box office game and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on the podcast. On to the spoiler zone summary. Uh, this book is divided into two parts. Part one is called Queen of Fire, and it covers uh, October 18 or 1585 to February 1587. 
Christopher Marlowe is a student at Cambridge. He is a gifted writer, but enjoys smoking and drinking a bit too much. Lord Walsingham is Queen Elizabeth's spymaster. He recruits Marlowe, and while he's given a choice to accept or not, he's pretty much urged to accept <laughs> this, this role. And he is dispatched to serve in the household of Mary, Queen of Scots, and spy on her. So if you know your British history, at this point, Elizabeth is on the throne. Mary, Queen of Scots, is suspected to <clears throat> want to have that position of being on the throne. And there are some historical and uh, reasons why she would feel that she had a claim to that. And also many reasons why Elizabeth is not interested in her <laughs> assuming that role. Uh, but while she is imprisoned, quote, like she's, she's locked in a castle. Uh, a couple different castles during her imprisonment, I believe she gets moved around. Um, but Kit is, uh, or Marlowe is assigned to uh, work uh, and try and get close and find out uh, if she basically has plans to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. So he has to leave Cambridge and his best friend, maybe more Tom, when he accepts this mission. Uh, Marlowe is dedicated to serving Queen Elizabeth, but while he is working uh, at Queen Mary's castle, he becomes friends with some of the staff, and he even meets and uh, likes Mary herself. He's able to steal a letter, which has a cipher that none of Walsingham's men can crack. So uh, Marlowe goes back uh, to his hometown when his sister dies, then he returns to Cambridge, where he and Tom begin a romantic relationship, and after months, he finally cracks the cipher. So he's supposed to be taking classes, but mostly <laughs> he's enjoying Tom and working on the cipher. And this cipher proves that Mary is planning to overthrow Elizabeth, uh, and Marlowe reports this back to Walsingham, and then he actually watches at, at, at Mary's execution and uh, the execution of some of her compatriots, and he is rocked by this. He feels shock, guilt, revulsion that he is responsible for what he views as their murders. And then uh, we're going to jump to part two, Prince of Darkness, which is going to be September 1592 to May 1593, about a five-year jump. Uh, and Marlowe has become a successful playwright and actor. He's working for Lord Strong's men. I always want to say strange because it just adds such a like ominous flair, but I know it is supposed to be pronounced Lord Strong. Uh, it's spelled like strange, but every time I see it mentioned, like historians feel the need to tell the reader immediately, <laughs> pronounce this <laughs> strong. <laughs> and like Benedict Cumberbatch didn't help anything with that. Cause now I see it. I'm like, ah, oh, yes, Dr. Strange. And that's not <laughs> yes, anything. Exactly. Um, Marlowe is still seeing Tom romantically. He receives a summons to see Walsingham again, which he hasn't seen him for years. And uh, when he goes, another man, Robert Cecil, is there. And Walsingham and Cecil are in a bit of a power struggle. The Crown is concerned about Lord Strong's loyalties. Marlowe is given encoded uh, letters with instructions to try and crack them. Uh, knowing that they're trying to look into Lord Strong, Marlowe... Um, takes opportunities to get closer to Strong and gain his trust. Strong brings Marlowe to his house and shows him a priest hole, which is a secret, secret hiding compartment that would have sometimes been built into houses of Catholics when it was declared to be illegal to be Catholic in England. Um, they enter this hidden room and Marlowe is immediately held at knife point. He's questioned by Anne, who was one of Queen Mary's servants who knew Marlowe when he was helping out at that house. Uh, and Anne is convinced that Marlowe was a spy, but Marlowe is able to convince Strong that he is a double agent recruited by Walsingham, but truly working for the Catholic Church. Um, <clears throat> and then Marlowe is going to go and report about this meeting to Walsingham and Walsingham is outraged. He's not happy. Uh, he wanted Marlowe to crack the code and not pretend to be a real spy. He doesn't have the right training <laughs> to carry on this level of deception. Uh, but after he calms down, Walsingham and Marlowe plan a date for a raid on Strong's estate that Marlowe can tip Strong off about to uh, increase Strong's trust in Marlowe. Marlowe doesn't tell Tom uh, about everything that he's ca caught up in now. Marlowe, not always the best boyfriend. I'm just going to mm. say it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Tom would agree. <laughs> um, Tom and uh, Marlo get involved in a bar fight, and Tom kills a man who is about to kill Marlo. So now Marlo and Tom end up in prison, uh, but Marlo gets taken out by Robert Cecil, who wants to embed Kit in a group of Papists led by Strong, who are up to something in Flushing, a city in the Netherlands. Marlo goes, and he finds out that there's an elaborate counterfeiting scheme to raise the appearance of funds for a plot to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. Uh, meanwhile, Tom is still in jail in England. A raid occurs at the shop where Marlo is working on counterfeiting coins, and he is arrested. Though things look grim for him, he is eventually returned to London, where Cecil lets him go and tells him that Tom has been released from prison as well. Strong is killed. Marlo is distraught about this. Tom goes to see Marlo's play, Dr. Faustus. And as the, the, the book cuts between scenes of Tom watching Dr. Faustus and Marlo meeting several of Cecil's men in a small room behind a bar, um, and as Faustus is grabbed by Mephistopheles and thrown to hell, a brief fight breaks out between Marlo and these men, and Marlo is stabbed through the eye. The end. I thought that last, that, that finale, when you're intercutting Dr. Faustus and uh, Marlo scenes, uh, there was something that felt very cinematic, but just like perfect <laughs> in, in the jumping back and forth between those scenes and the idea of selling your soul. Um, I'm so glad. Yeah, that last scene in Faustus is so – the way that he plays with time and the way that it's written where he's literally counting down the hours to midnight and then the clock starts to speed up as the scene goes on. And it's just – there's so much in there that feels like it's ramping up toward exactly the end of his life that I almost feel like – it felt like he knew what was happening when he wrote it. At least that's how I always read it. And so I just really wanted to blend those two scenes together. And that was one of the first – that was in the first draft of the book, the end that way. Almost everything else changed, but the end was always written like that. Oh, well, yeah, I think uh, as a creative writer, like once you latch onto that concept, I don't think you could possibly let it go, right? <laughs> I'm like, no, we're keeping this. <laughs> yeah, the, the, this is staying. All the revision, like when they sit and talk about like uh, throwing away your babies, it's like, not this one. This no, one is coming with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, like I noted, uh, uh, last year in, I'm double checking when we released it, it would have been in uh, August of last year, we did an episode on Dr. Faustus. So any listeners who want to listen to a full discussion on just that play by Marlo, uh, you can go through the archives a little bit and find that. Um, Allison, I guess my question for you, and this is an activity we do sometimes when we're talking about favorite characters from these works, it, it's inspired by a writer um, prompt that i saw once of like listing the characteristics of your favorite character and they said hopefully you find contradictions within there because that's where interesting characters live is in those mm -hmm. contradictions if you're going to try and describe some of the characteristics of kit marlowe uh, as you present him in this book what are some of the adjectives you would use yeah boy he he really is just one giant anxious ball of contradictions <laughs> so that drives for me i mean he's very confident in himself and mm -hmm. also deeply uncertain about everything he believes and everything he's doing. Um, I think he's very, um, has no interest in authority and he's very rebellious, but at the same time, he's very determined to like, he has a very strong sense of right and wrong and what he mm -hmm. thinks to be the path he should follow. And it's hard for him to deviate from that. But he's um, also deeply suspicious of anyone who feels like they have it figured out, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Any kind of formal authority, if it's a, a church or a government or your teacher who's saying, you know, please don't fall asleep in class. He's, he doesn't really believe in listening to anyone who thinks they know better than him. But 
he also has no idea what he believes. <laughs> yeah, when I was uh, thinking about it, I immediately wrote down that he's arrogant and foolhardy, but also introspective and regretful. <laughs> 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 like he goes in to a situation almost as though like I can, I'm going to have no regrets. I'm just living, you know, <laughs> you'll you only live once. <laughs> But then as soon as things pause, he's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, I have more than one regret. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that makes such a fascinating character in um, that writer who who I first read that prompt from. It was David Isaacs who who writes a lot of sitcoms. And he was he was talking about that exercise with with Fraser uh, Crane. And one of the things mm-hmm. that's most fascinating about Fraser Crane is that he's so arrogant, but deeply needy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and and I, I think that also applies somewhat to, to Marlowe. <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I have never had someone compare Kit Marlowe and Fraser Crane, but I'm obsessed with that. I'll be thinking about that the rest of the day. That's cool. <laughs> uh, and, and I think once you like see that character type of like the 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 pompous but uh, but needy combination, yeah. it it just immediately clicks for like so many of our favorite characters. Like, oh, that's that's part of who they are, <laughs> right? Because the pompous part of it is like, oh, I want this person to be really fast talking and clever and funny and interesting like that's the kind of character we're drawn to but if it's just that that's deeply off-putting right you don't want anybody who completely has everything figured out that's not relatable that's not interesting so mm-hmm. at least part of that is a front for for something some some pain inside yeah i think that's yeah there's most of my favorite characters are like that they're they have a really sharp and jaggedy and snarky outside but on the inside you know it's it's partly real and partly covering up for something yeah, some of it is a facade, but also they probably do think they are the smartest person in the room. And sometimes they are, and sometimes mm-hmm. they are not. <laughs> um, when you set about to write this historical fiction, um, like I said, there's so many interesting dots that we get from Marla's life, mostly from court records. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he was arrested several times. <laughs> and uh, I'm guessing, like, I've never heard like the great explanation for why he was in flushing and no one knows for counterfeiting all but of I the conspiracy thought... theorists are like i guess he was here sure because <laughs> that's one of like the very hard facts we have is oh yeah he was definitely arrested in flushing and let me tell what? you when you're trying to really hammer out the plot for a novel and you're like okay we have this great conspiracy happening in england and all of this chaps and all of this tracks and now he's got to be in the netherlands for a year and i don't know why because he won't tell me that was really difficult to fit in there, but yeah. well, this is what I was going to ask: is like, um, as as you're you're crafting fiction, and you have a little mini essay at the back where you kind of acknowledge that you have to move some parts to make a story sure. for for clarity. You you especially when we don't know what was actually going on, like what in the world was was this man up to? Uh, you may shift some things, and you also moved him into some of the more dramatic historical events of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, is it very unlikely that he would have actually been spying on Mary Queen of Scots? But yeah. What a time for him to be spying on Mary Queen of Scots. He's a spy and this is happening. And I don't have the self-restraint to say, well, he wasn't there at all. Uh, but I was going to like, as, as a writer, what is that like to, to like have these snippets that you're trying to grasp and make sense of and put a puzzle together. But so many of the pieces of this life from centuries ago that, that we just don't have. Um, is it, is it frustrating? Is it exciting? <laughs> is it, is it fun? It is both. Um, there are times it's the most fun thing ever when you're going through the archives or a document that tangentially relates to something and you see like there are all kinds of dead ends in the historical record about what Marlowe might have been doing. And it's just so fun to track those and see like, ooh, can I work this in here? Could this thread fit in somewhere? Obviously, every rumor about him can't possibly be true. So you have to pick and choose like, OK, this one I'm going to entertain. 
because it fits the arc of a story I want to tell. And this one is really interesting, but probably not going to make it. For instance, there's a fairly common theory that instead of spying on Mary, Queen of Scots, Marlowe might have been an undercover priest in France, which like would have been another fascinating book that I would like to have written because Marlowe would be a very bad priest. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not not his forte. No, so like I can nod at that in the story, but I had to like really make some hard cuts about like, okay, what what path are we going to follow? And most of the time, Marlowe's breadcrumbs in the historical record were far enough away from each other and connected the same sort of national zeitgeist at the time that most of them could fit into the story I was trying to tell. It, there are just some weird outliers that are very frustrating. And I'm like, why couldn't you live a more neat life that would fit into the arc of my book more nicely? Or at least give us some more records of what. I mean, like one diary page that said, today I went to the Netherlands because. Like, that would be great. <laughs> um, as you're preparing this, I mean... I- Literally, like, the, the greatest record we have of Marlowe and his thoughts are his plays. So did you have to go read all of his plays? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I had read most of them kind of as I was getting excited to write the book. And then I went back and read a few of them several times. There are a few that actually appear in the second half of the book. Some of them, uh, some are better than others. And so I leaned into the ones I like the most, but definitely <laughs> spent some time with those. Uh, Faustus is on a level of its own. It's just That's a masterpiece. If I, I guess I'm still fascinated with like when you get to this final scene and you do that intercutting between Faustus, um, do you do you feel like Marlowe was putting some of himself into Faustus? <laughs> I guess oh, like like yeah. for your text, it absolutely feels like yes, this is clearly like a man is working out his own demons as he writes Faustus because of the guilt that you have given him and uh, like like the world spinning out of control around him for, because of choices that he knows he made and mm-hmm. and it feels like that's the natural pairing uh, with Faustus. Do you suspect that that's something real that was going on with Marlowe? I don't want to project all of what I put on Faustus into the historical <laughs> record. I think it's likely that some of that felt personally resonant. I always thought it was so interesting that a man who is so famously an atheist wants to write a play where the final scene of your soul being dragged to hell is so powerfully harrowing. Like, if this is something that he professes he doesn't believe in, how is this something that you can write so powerfully? And obviously, you know, we're artists use imagination. It's not as if he's writing this from true experience, but there does, it always felt to me like there was something, some real fear in there. And that was another one of those contradictions that I just thought was so interesting for him. Why why is this story of a person who thinks that God isn't real and then finds out he's proven wrong? Why did that draw Marlowe in as a person? Yeah, it is uh, fascinating because that is such a significant text for him, uh, like just for his his kind of legend and, and his reputation. Uh, if you've ever heard of Marlowe or seen a play, it's probably Faustus. Um, and yet then when you look into his life, you're like, this doesn't feel like yeah. a perfect alignment <laughs> of the character of, of the author. It's so interesting. Just like, and then the rest of his plays are just all something about Marlowe's plays. He's get, he gets compared to Shakespeare a lot just because they both wrote 
at about the same time and they both wrote in blank verse unrhymed iambic pentameter and like Shakespeare borrowed some lines from Marlowe because he was very famous. And so I think there's like a an idea that Shakespeare just did Marlowe again but better. That's the reaction that I get sometimes from people who have like lightly touched on the period. And for me, Marlowe's plays are so much their own thing. No one was doing what he was doing in the theater at that time. He was doing like how I've described it in the past is sort of like the Elizabethan Tarantino. Like he's writing really bloody, over the top, horrifying, upsetting plays that like if you were to state some of them are like almost unstageable today mm-hmm. because of how like some of them there are parts there are parts of Edward II I cannot read. There it's it's truly like bloody awfulness of what humanity is capable of. And that's not what Shakespeare was doing at all. It's a very different sort of focus and artistic obsession almost that he's going into. Yeah, it's like um, Shakespeare kind of hits that level with Titus Andronicus, but not much else. And it seemed to be that Marlowe was just kind of living there. Yes, Shakespeare tried it. And he's like, oh, actually, this makes me feel bad about myself. That's my suspicion. (laughs) Like, oh, I don't like this at all. Um. Yeah, and, and it's also so fascinating when you dig into the history of this era, like there was so much control about what mm-hmm. could and couldn't be staged. And, and some of it is like, how? How did he get away with this? <laughs> yes, exactly. There's this uh, scene in Tamburlaine the Great Part 2, which like, first of all, the fact that he didn't come up with a better title, it was just like, Tamburlaine the Great, too Tamburlaine, too great. Okay, sure, Marlowe. <laughs> But there's a scene where the main character is just on stage burning religious texts in front of the audience. And I'm like, how did you do that? How did they not stop you? I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, we, we made some acknowledgments of like the, uh, the, the, like the, the idea of a priest hole. It's because like what religion you had to believe in was dictated by law. Um, and yeah. the, there was uh, every play that was going to be produced had to be approved <laughs> by people who were trying to ensure like the religious piety of the masses basically (laughs) and then somehow we got this guy i don't i don't know which is why there's so many fun conspiracy theories about his death because there were a lot of people who could have and probably were angry at marlo oh yeah he was not making friends left and right i will i will tell you that honestly it's also a good argument for in my opinion that his his spy work was important enough that they let him get away with things because the the master of rebels who was the the queen censor at the time that was like a member of the the royal household right like they're all working for the same organization and they're like okay well we need this guy so maybe we won't have him almost hanged for doing this incredibly obscene play and we'll also still let it be state like why didn't he just say no you gotta cut that scene i don't feel like but it is really good though <laughs> i've always felt like master of revels should not be the person censoring everything like that feels like a title Yes. <laughs> the person who's who's testing all the wines. Like, that okay, guy this... should be having more fun than he's having. <laughs> um, is there anything in particular, like in your research or in writing, where you just felt like you came to understand Marla? Like you gained an insight into who this this person was, this character. Uh, both either as, like you said, you don't want to project onto the real historical person, but in terms of presenting him as a character in this novel, were there moments where you're like, okay, this now I've I've actually got a handle on something that is going to be significant for the depth of this character. That's such a great question. And the the process of researching this book is so strange because going this far back, we don't really have any 
documents from Marlowe except for the place. That's all we have is him writing obliquely about things that are fictional. And all of the other sources that are out there are things written about him, usually from a perspective of somebody who did not like him very much. So I always got the impression from as soon as I started researching, like, okay, this guy very quickly could rub somebody the wrong way. This is not a a take it or leave it personality. You're either going to want to be around him all the time or you're going to think, oh my gosh, this guy is in the room again. I don't know what to do with him. And the source that I loved the most in my research was it's called the Baines Note. And it's a deposition that um, allegedly another of of Queen Elizabeth's spies, a man named Richard Baines, wrote, I believe, shortly after Marlowe's death, a series of accusations about heretical and um, treasonous things that he is allegedly this where heard the, Marlowe uh, say. The rumors that he was homosexual come out of the Baines. I mean, they also come out of the plays, which are incredibly queer. But yes, the the famous line, "All those that love not tobacco and boys are fools," that's from the Baines note. And I loved it. it <laughs> I love the way that Baines clearly hates Marlowe in this document. And yet all of the things that he reports Marlowe saying are so cool that I just liked him more. It would just feel like a real positioning fail on Baines's part. <laughs> Everything he said, I was like, oh, that's funny. I like that. Let me learn more about this person. So. We see that occasionally, like today, when people like go on rants on uh, on social media about like what's how someone else treated them. It's like I think I'm on the other person's side, and I'm only hearing your side of it. <laughs> yeah, it's very AITA Reddit style. Like mm, I think you're wrong here, man. Yeah. Baines, and, and this it's kind of like um oh there's uh um Edgar Allan Poe's literary rival Rufus Wilmot Griswold. Who ruined, lost that fight, by the way. Because yeah, no tried to ruin Poe's reputation by casting him as, like, a proto-emo, uh, you know, just just no one liked him. He, he's uh, he's just morose all the time, uh-huh. and he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a goth kid. And, the goth uh, kids are like, great! <laughs> yeah, and that became, like, the, the idea of Poe. Like, he mythologized Poe, essentially, mm-hmm. when Poe most likely would not have had the reputation that he has or would not have the presence in in modern, like, cultural conceptions of who he is, if not for Griswold trying to ruin Poe's reputation. And he, he almost invented a larger-than-life character. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, exactly. In, in doing this. And the only time anyone ever mentions Rufus Wilmot Griswold is when they <laughs> talk about him having a fight with Poe. And I hope just... When whatever afterlife there is, he's just so steamed about that. You know he's mad. You know he's mad. So it sounds like in some ways Baines, Richard Baines, is oh, uh, Marlowe's Griswold. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he would, he is rolling in his grave to know that we only ever say his name in conversation with how cool Marlowe was. <laughs> and because he made him sound cooler. Right. And complaining about him. Oh, I, I love like historical pettiness that yes. backfires. It's so, so, so rich. It like, truly reminds you that we have not changed in 500 years we are still petty and we still hate people and we're still gonna like talk bad about them in subtweets whether it's a tweet or a pamphlet we're still gonna do it um as as you're writing this story i guess you're you're trying to craft a narrative that is going to have cohesion and you've got these (laughs) snippets of history how do you choose okay this is where i have to start this this story to make sense for a reader and 
I think there's a logical endpoint, so we can accept the endpoint. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that one's predestined. Yes, the ending was very clear. There was no way out of that to my to my distress. Um, but in the beginning, honestly, I also always had the beginning point fixed in my head. I wanted to take him from beginning to end in this journey into this spy career that he was really well suited for, but also in no way prepared for. I think I wanted the before and after. And mm. so that set up the arc. I had seven years to work with in the book. And the irritating thing about Marlowe's records is that there is this like sort of quiet period in the late 1580s, early 1590s, where he's just kind of like building a life and writing plays. And I would have loved to have written all the way through those seven years kind of following his life day to day. But um, my publisher told me the book couldn't be a thousand pages long. And so I had some to, people. Yeah, I know. I would have had a great time. But so yeah, it kind of naturally split itself into the two parts that you mentioned as you were giving that great summary. Um, there was the natural end point of the Mary Queen of Scots plot, which felt like a real like death of innocence moment for Marlowe. That was like that really changed the trajectory. And then there was sort of the second the second arc, which for me was kind of playing on that old heist trope of like, okay, bring in your best guy for one last job. That's kind of what it felt like. Thought, it really did feel like yeah, yeah, yeah. they're he pulling you back out. in. <laughs> one like, last I was job. out, but you brought me back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love getting the gang together montages, but yes. in this instance, it's really just, just, just uh, Marlo and Walsingham hanging out again. <laughs> well, I got the gang back together in a preschool, which is kind of what I'm trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, for for Marlo, why do you think he is so fascinating? Like, like, I think you did an excellent job of making us care about this character, but when I stopped to try and think about him, I'm like, he's not a good guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's not, he's definitely not a good friend. <laughs> no, he, you said earlier he's a terrible boyfriend. That's extremely true. <laughs> yeah, um, but but at the same time, like there's something compelling about reading about him. D- do you have a sense as someone who put put this person onto the page wh- what that is? <laughs> I guess yeah. I know it's a very broad, open ended question that is probably about more than just Marlowe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is about like what is compelling in human nature, which is like not a not a small question. Uh-huh. But, um, I feel like. I, now, I've done some thinking about this, and like it does feel to me like Marlowe is a character, at least how I was trying to write him. There's a lot of really fundamental archetypes that his story really naturally maps itself onto. Like he's He is sort of the rags to riches underdog in a way. He came from a very poor family. It's not thought that his parents could probably read or write. And he kind of like bootstrapped his way into college and then into literary fame and into the um, court of the queen. And like, say what you will about the um, unfeasibility of the bootstraps narrative. Like, obviously, he had some help. He didn't do it all by himself. But I think there's still something in us like as people drawn to story that we like that, that story of the, the self-made guy who like, got by by his own smarts and his own mm-hmm. ambition. Um, that was really compelling to me. Um, I also think there's just a lot to say for someone who really believes what they're selling about themselves. Like we talked some about his own 
insecurities earlier in this conversation, but I think he puts on such a great front of a guy who knows what he's doing and can handle it that yeah. I almost want to believe, like, yeah, you're, you probably can if you can sell it that well. And then it, I think that also makes him someone that you want to root for because you want that um, infectious confidence to be based on something. Yeah, I mean, I think he falls into or, or is another example of the kind of Byronic hero, right? The um, which I'm trying to I'm going to see if I can find it real quick. There's one historian, let's say, who described Byronic hero. Here it is. Uh, a man proud, moony, cynical, with defiance on his brow, misery in his heart, a scorner of his kind, <laughs> implacable in revenge, yet capable of deep and strong affection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tried to make him a little bit less mopey than your average yeah. Byronic hero, but... <laughs> But yeah, I see. I see where you're going. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean that's definitely a character type that has endured for yes. centuries <laughs> with, with fascination and embrace uh, by the public in sometimes unhealthy ways. That yes. People start to say, "Hey, that's not such a bad guy. Maybe maybe he's a bad guy. I can fix him. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's a that's a red flag. <laughs> oh, he's just he's waving red flags from the back. Yeah, that's not a cry for help. That's a red flag. For yes. You. <laughs> Um, as, as you were writing, you got to uh, also present several other historical figures. I, I know that um, in my reading, Walsingham became so interesting to kind of see uh, the um, confident, complete man in control in the first part become someone who is clearly like clinging for power and trying to be shown the door mm-hmm. <laughs> in the second part. And just the idea of someone who is so at the top of the game like incomplete control and then coming to the realization that this game will be going on without me, I think yeah. is, is kind of what it felt like um, for him. Um, so I, I thought that was a really well developed and presented character for us. Were there any favorite side characters for you, uh, whether historical ones or ones that you got to invent whole cloth? Well, I'm really delighted to hear you say that because Walsingham is my favorite. He's my, my side character of my heart. And I am really that you described exactly what I was trying to get across with him. So that was really gratifying for me. Like, I love the idea of the, 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 the balance of power as it shifts between Kit and Walsingham as the book goes on. In the beginning, it's very, Walsingham knows everything. He is in full control of everything. He's the puppet master, and Kit is just the thorn in his side, messing with him all the way, like getting the job done, but in the most irritating way possible. And by the time we get to the end, um, Walsingham is now looking at Kit as you're the only one left that I can trust because this whole world has changed and I'm still as competent as I ever was but the world doesn't need me and for someone who's I he's built his entire career on being absolutely the most needed person in every room and where do you go once the machine no longer needs you that was definitely something I wanted to get across with him. And I, well, if there's one other character in this book that I could have written a whole novel from their point of view, it would have been Walsingham. I think I would have, I would love to read a great Walsingham historical fiction novel. If no one, if anyone does. I don't, I was just imagining the level of research that would be necessary to try and figure out all all the pies that he had his fingers in. The (laughs) the strings and the pushpins you would need to track what he was up to would be, would make your house look wild. <laughs> yeah, it, it would definitely be a conspiracy board. Yes, <laughs> try and figure out everything that that man was was involved in. Yeah, everything. Like he had a 30, 40 year career of the most 
espionage heavy period in English history pre-world wars I would say like it's it's quite a thing I mean and I think that level of control and power like on a certain level it must be intoxicating right to like be literally in the know about basically anything yeah (laughs) and then when we do this time jump we see like suddenly he was realizing I'm 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 not going to be in this position forever, essentially. Right. And so much of his job was in service of the queen, who by mm-hmm. the end of this novel, I don't I don't really get into it directly. Just there's been enough books, I think, written about Queen Elizabeth and bringing her into the book was going to kind of overshadow the the people that I was talking about. She's she's kind of a, a large presence. But mm-hmm. by the time this book ends, we're in the mid 1590s and her reign is kind of going the way that Walsingham's career has gone. She's been at the apex of European power for 50 years. And now the, the game is going to go on without her. Um, I've, I've read some of Alison Weir's uh, historical books. I haven't read any of her novels, but I know like if, when you mentioned like there's, there's many historical texts yes. <laughs> that address <laughs> Elizabeth. I would just so. There should be. Uh, some of Alison Weir's, uh, I, I know she's also a novel writer. I've just not read any of her novels about about that. But I, her history, I would just remember kind of being blown away. Like, oh, there's so much here. <laughs> there's so much. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you mentioned like bringing Elizabeth in would kind of suddenly overshadow. I imagine you must have at least been tempted a little bit to maybe consider bringing in Shakespeare. But I think it's the exact same thing. Once Shakespeare's in the room, because of our, our cultural you know how bright he shines in our cultural understanding and our cultural literacy. Yeah. If Shakespeare's in there, it's suddenly not Marlowe's story anymore, right? I'll tell you, there there actually is a little one chapter cameo of Shakespeare in the second part of this book, and the reason I put him in, he just kind mm-hmm. of dips in and dips out, yep. and I did it so no one could say that Marlowe faked his death and becomes Shakespeare in that universe. <laughs> and is he, is he on the stage for when Tom's watching? He is, yeah. That's the other one. I thought, yeah. yeah, like like you, you acknowledge the existence of Shakespeare because I think there's probably some of the audience who are just waiting. Yes, you know, <laughs> I know they they like to ask me about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about Lord Strong? I thought he was an interesting character here in the in the second part. How would you try and characterize him? Yeah, he's yeah he's interesting. Um, the I the way I came to him is that he was the patron of the theater company where Marlowe's plays were produced. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's how, at first, he was entering into the narrative. Okay, Marlowe needs somehow to get the money to stage his plays. And then looking more into his family, there are so many plots against Queen Elizabeth in this time period that truly, if you throw a stone, you will hit another person trying to overthrow her. So, like, it makes sense how deep her spy network is because there were so many people coming for her and Lord Strong's family was one of those. I need my family tree to tell you how he was acclaimed throne, but he, he, I love a mysterious eccentric patron of the arts who dies under mysterious (laughs) circumstances. So I was really interested in what the record had to say about him. And then I kind of spun him out in my own way to be really one of those, um, Rebels who believe deeply in their heart that what they're doing is right. And he puts out a compelling enough case that it starts to kind of change Kit's mind. Because he, he's seen what the crown is willing to do to hold on to its power and its stability. And he's seen the lines they're willing to cross 
he's seen what happened to Mary and he's at the point he's thinking maybe maybe they are going too far and then Strong comes out and he's charismatic and he's got a good argument and he's saying you know maybe it shouldn't be like this that's a that's a one of those hairline fractures of doubt that can like really really get into your mind and make you think you know what am I doing and he has a secret room in his house and that's always an exciting thing to add to a story <laughs> if i could get a trap door in here i was going to get a trap door in here <laughs> and i mean also i mean i know this like historically accurate that there would have been secret rooms but also just calling them priest holes like it's, it's so just good. <laughs> something so evocative about the idea of like a forbidden religion that the people had to pretend to give up their faith but actually had hidden rooms where just, they kept yeah, their faith go in your secret basement it's funny when my editor was reading over my revised draft, she got to that chapter and the comment in the margin just said priest hole with three exclamation marks. <laughs> so That's a common reaction to that delightful <laughs> idea. <laughs> I think anyone who's like a little bit of a Shakespeare geek and like you, you start to read up about yeah. this history. Like there's something about that that just like the, the term is so fascinating. Yeah. Like, and some of them were, were like so small, the priest couldn't stand up in it. And it's like, I had to get four people into this room. So it's yeah. like, <laughs> I do remember, like, thinking, like, how big is this space? <laughs> like, once a knife is at, at Marla's throat, and then you, like, you say, it's like, you know, it's a small, tight space. <laughs> right? it, but, the, but yes, there are more, more, more than just <laughs> two people in there. Yeah, you can stand straight up and try to stab somebody. <laughs> well, I mean, it's Lord Strong, right? He's If he's going to have a priest hole, it's it's not going to be a cheap one. He's got money. He's going to yeah. do the whole HGTV thing on his priest hole. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, is it a panic room or is it, like, a panic room, right? That's what <laughs> panic room or a man cave yeah i don't know <laughs> um uh let's see uh what about tom now i believe you can correct me but that's a character that you created correct it is um okay. it's an amalgamation of a lot of different people in its life i mean we don't have documented sources that said this person was romantically involved with kit Marlowe for mm -hmm. obvious reasons i mean it's pretty well accepted in the historical record that it was queer. I, I don't really have much patience for people who try to claim that he wasn't, but we don't there's, have, obviously there were no like documented records of anything. Like, there, there's no, there's enough hints and re re references to him I, being queer. I feel that, like, and there's yeah. no one that's out there screaming in the historical record, heterosexual. It's like, no, it's, no <laughs> like, one can just... read Marlowe's poem, Hero and Leander, and go, yes, a straight man wrote this. That is my my opinion as a queer studier of Marlowe's work. That that is that is pretty obvious to me. But to, to your original question, yeah, Tom was um an amalgamation. There are lots of theories, again, nothing but theories about who Kit might have been romantically involved with, if anyone. But in the setting of this book, it was it was important to me that the the queer aspects of this book were not the seat of the tragedy for Marlowe. Mm -hmm. For me, the tragedy is the the deeply human sensation of a person getting in something over their head and not being able to turn around and get their way back out. That I didn't want that to be a you know a barrier gaze situation. That was important to me. So right, I, and that's I, the yeah. for any listeners who don't know, that's the the trope that as uh, there was a wave of authors who tried to be more inclusive, include gay characters, and then they almost inevitably killed them off, and it oh, became a trope called "barrier gaze." Yeah, <laughs> it was it's not great. So yeah. here, the relationship with Tom, I wanted that to be like the one good solid thing throughout the book. This is one thing that he can come back to and find some peace in in this world that is 
absolutely spinning out of control. Like, is it perfect? No, there's definitely still trauma in it. They're they're human and they treat each other badly and bad things happen. But the relationship itself is pretty stable throughout. And that was great fun for me. It's also what I like to read. So mm-hmm. wanted to put out more books. In yeah, hopes I mean, I can there, get there's enough more. drama around Marlo yeah. <laughs> that you do not need to add relationship troubles. No, he's got enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I like that you said, like, he's the, he's like this sure foundation. I was going to say, like, to put up with everything that he puts up with, he was a saint of a man. Oh, boy, <laughs> this, yeah. this version of Tom. <laughs> <laughs> like, he had uh, the patience of a Job. <laughs> uh-huh. he, he, well, he lost it about twice, and that was 20 less times than I would have lost it. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I mean, part of it, I was, I think you kind of already answered the question, but I was going to ask, like, as you tried to imagine someone who would be in a relationship with Marlo, like, this is the person that you created. And I like that you, you, you explained, like, you, you kind of wanted, essentially, Marlo to have a good thing he could hold on to. Uh, because yeah. when we see him visit his, his hometown, we realize his family life is not that for him. Mm-hmm. Um, we see his relationship with his, his fellow students and his teachers. It's like, no, I don't okay. think academia is really going to gonna be a place uh for someone like him and his relationship while it there is this kind of mentor mentee relationship between him and walsingham it's also by nature at a distance uh you know there mm-hmm. he, he can't turn to to walsingham for moral support essentially Although he does support himself right yes. you know he sees him struggling and does offer him some support but it's also it, it's a different relationship you're not gonna go to walsingham with your personal problems he is not interested yes. in your personal problems yeah. exactly uh, and so, yeah, it, it uh, Tom becomes both a strength for Marlo, but also like there is some tragedy there where Tom kills for for Kit, right? He, yeah. He, and, and then Marlo gets pulled out of jail because he's he's the spy with the brain for the code breaking, and he's already somewhat embedded in the Lord Strong situation. And then he's got to like worry about Tom this whole time. Yeah. Um, and a- after he gets pulled out, not that the surrounding situations about it are necessarily true, but that fact is true that Tom and Kit were involved in a bar fight at about this time and Tom killed a man. They were both sent to prison. Kit was released and Tom was not. Oh, so so the, was there someone named Tom specifically that would have that was involved in that situation right then? Tom Watson, yes. That is okay. the person that I then built out into this larger role. They probably didn't know each other earlier and so I, I fudged that relationship. Mm-hmm. It really, my Tom bears no particular resemblance to the historical Tom, except for that one episode. Which sounds like, from what you're it may have just been a drunk bar fight. <laughs> well, I feel like Kit's probably starting some stuff. Like, <laughs> yes. I think it was his fault, almost certain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, again, we only get snippets, but it tracks what you're saying. <laughs> so. Well, uh, Allison, thank you for coming on and talking through some of your process. Do you have any final things you want to say about Christopher Marlowe or um, any of the other characters in your novel? Um, I've just really enjoyed being able to talk about them from a character perspective. This is a really awesome uh, conceit for a podcast, and it's a lot of fun. So thank you again for having me on to do it. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. It's always exciting when we get uh, creators to come on to talk about their own their own work. We get a different kind of insight than when it's, you know, academics or fans <laughs> <laughs> that come on to talk about something, which they, it's all different angles to approach, approach text or forum, right? For sure. 
Um, well, Allison, you are a first time guest and we always ask a first time guest about characters because this is a podcast that celebrates great characters. If you could hang out with a group of fictional characters for an evening at a dinner party, who would you want to invite? I love this question and I had to think so hard about it because most of my favorite characters are the kinds you would never invite over. So I had to be like, <laughs> okay, who do I love that would also like not destroy my house? So I've come up with four and one is um, Jeffrey Chaucer as played by Paul Bettany in the 2001 film A Knight's Tale, which is my favorite movie. He is my favorite character in that movie. If you haven't watched that movie recently, make sure you do. It's a delight. Um, I would also invite Gideon Nav from Tamsin Weir's The Locked Tomb series. Um, Sarcastic, stabby um, necromancer from space. Um, All right, what was that series? I'm not familiar with that. And <laughs> Look into that. It's called the Lock Tomb series. There's three books out now. One's coming out in October. The first one is called Gideon the Ninth. It is stunning and weird and delightful. Let's see. How do you spell it again? I don't think I've gotten it in my Google search right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, just the Locked Tomb. Like a, a tomb oh, okay. Locked for Tomb. A body, there we go. Sorry. I, I misheard that locked tomb series. Okay, yes. I see it. There we go. I like the description that I've been given so far. Perfect. So. <laughs> the third person I would invite is Lila Bard from A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab, who is a uh, magic smuggler pirate. Um, she's a delight also. And the fourth would be Henry Tilney from Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. All of these are like my favorite type of character, which is sarcastic nonsense person who's like doesn't take anything too seriously and is kind of annoying about it. And I feel like we'd have a really good conversation. Yeah, definitely leaning into the fun, right? Yes. The, mm -hmm. the, I'm the not going for anything ice. deep here. <laughs> oh, that, I love the eclectic groups. I get when I ask this question. It's never, never been a misfire to ask this question. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you again, Allison. Um, is there anything you would like to plug, let your our listeners know about your website or anything like that? Sure. Um, I'm online at allisonepstein.com. That's the central hub for all of my things. You can find a tip for the hangman and also pre-order my new book, um, Let the Dead Bury the Dead, which is coming in the U.S. and Canada in October. Um, I also like to plug um, my Substack if you like listening to my brand of nonsense. Um, I write a substat called Dirtbags Through the Ages, which is every two weeks I publish a short essay about a terrible person from history and why they were the worst. Now, um, Allison, do you ever worry you're going to run out of content? For... I have a list, 30 people deep, and people, what, what's lovely about it is that people I don't know now just send me Wikipedia links and say, look at this guy. So it's <laughs> look now self <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. That is, oh, I mean, so I, I've been doing a, a weekly podcast talking about great characters and great stories. And and people ask, like, do you, do you ever feel like you're going to run out? I'm like 400 episodes in. It's like, no, it's <laughs> like our list of what to get to is, is as long as it has ever been. But yes. Dirtbags in History is maybe even a more fruitful. <laughs> there are so many. Honestly, if you just Google worst popes, you're going to have enough for a year. So there's plenty. Oh my goodness. That is such a great concept for, for like a regular feature. Oh. 
All right. Well, listeners, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long.